Welcome everybody, it's Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development. It's absolutely our delight and our privilege to have Dr. Oliver Ozzie Croco from Louisiana State University, who's the Assistant Professor of Leadership and Human Resource Development. Fantastic to have you with us. Thank you, glad to be here. Ozzy, I'd love for you to tell us uh, about your role and the types of things that you get to give input on and, and your research and teaching. Sure, yeah, thanks. Well, thanks again for having me on. And um, so as you mentioned, I'm a faculty member in the School of Leadership and Human Resource Development at LSU. Um, and for those of you who are not in the United States, LSU uh, won the National Football Championship, which is a very big deal at Ooh. collegiate level. And you know, it's awesome. one of the ways that America is truly exceptional in that we have these stadiums for American football at the university level. And our stadium at LSU holds 100,000 people, if you can believe that. So, and then another 40 or 50,000 come and tailgate um, outside of the game. So, yeah, so that's kind of to give you a sense of where I am now and, <laughs> and might uh, also share a little bit about U.S culture as well. So, um, so I'm a faculty there and I teach a bunch of courses. Uh, I teach a course on mixed methods research, which is using qualitative and quantitative uh, methods in interesting ways to answer complex research questions. Um, I also teach a study abroad course called Global Leadership, which is where we um, travel and meet with organizational leaders um, in several different contexts in Thailand. Um, and I lived and worked in Thailand for four years uh, at Pai uh, University and did a whole bunch of projects related to leadership and development there. Um, so that was a cool way that even though now I live in Louisiana, I could sort of share that experience and those people with my students here. Um, and we, we took them to Thailand last January, which is really cool. Um, and then I also um, am the coordinator. We have a new program called um, Learning Experience Design and Innovation, which is sort of like the next step of instructional design. Um, so it's really about kind of cultivating learning experiences um, in mostly online contexts. And so that's a program that just started this fall. Our classes started on Monday. So it's been exci an exciting new venture and really um, relevant now with the COVID-19 pandemic to think about, okay, we know pretty well how to create really compelling learning experiences when we're face-to-face, -face, but now how do we do that? In fact, we're forced to do that now with the COVID thing. So um, those are the main things that occupy my time day-to-day -day and um, some of my interests. That's really interesting. So how has the university changed or innovated on its delivery of academic programs, given this um, situation we're in right now? Uh, that's a tough one. And I think innovation is a key part. Well, thankfully at LSU, for example, we have um, sort of a branch of the university called LSU Online, which oversees all of our online programs. And they've really upped their presence on the campus and have been offering tons of information and tutorials and working one-on-one -on -one with faculty members. We have a whole team of what are called learning experience designers who are professionals who are really good at working with a subject matter expert to um, develop their course to make it very compelling and as experiential as possible. 
Um, so those are some of the ways, but you know, it's really hard, especially for people who have been teaching a course who love that, you know, dialogue, the energy of a classroom. It's really hard to think outside the box now. And, you know, so I think those are some of the challenges that not only at LSU, but I think everywhere around the world are facing how to do that well. Is there a particular technology platform that you favor to allow that innovation discussion feeling to happen? Uh, there's a bunch of things that, there's a combination of things that we use. So at LSU, we have a thing called Moodle, which is a free learning management system. Uh, you know, many people are familiar with that. Um, so learning management systems are great, but there also can be a crutch and can be a way that people then don't engage as much authentically with, uh, with one another. So, you know, I think I, I always have, even in my um, courses, which are entirely asynchronous, so there's no face-to-face -face interaction uh, or no sort of like synchronous inter uh, interaction, I always have at least one hour a week of virtual office hours where at least I can engage somewhat with the students um, and, you know, talk. Because I think conversation and we talk about authentic leaders, authentic leadership, you know, where you can kind of have real back and forth. I think those tend to help move people more um, than sort of just watch this video, respond to this forum post, which has been a very big trend up to now in online learning. You know. <laughs> I'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on the differences in leadership and particularly in an ASEAN environment like Thailand compared to a Western environment in, in North America. Is there a comparison? Are they different? Uh, sure, I can give you some very broad strokes. Um, you know, and I think it's important, you know, a lot of these are generalizations, you know, even Gerd Hofstetter, who is responsible for the cultural dimensions, looking at, you know, individualism versus collectivism, you know, at the national level. We also see that there's a lot of regional differences, even within countries. Um, I also saw one study that compared the, in, the influence of national culture and organizational culture. And they found that organizational culture actually was more influential in people's lives than the national culture even. Um, so I would just say with the caveat that there's, you know, there's a lot of also a lot of individual differences that account. But I would say generally, generally, um, like, for example, if you and I, if you were moving to Thailand from the United States and you were going to work in a primarily Thai organization, what would I tell you about leadership and how it differs? I would say, for one, generally people in the United States are direct communicators. So tell me what you want. I'll do it. Tell me what you don't want. I won't do it. You know, as long as you're kind, you know, you should always be kind about it. Um, whereas generally, um, not all, but many Thai people uh, don't really like the super direct communication of leaders, especially um, when there is a power differential. So, you know, if you're like the lower, and for example, when I worked, when I first moved to Thailand at age 23, I was definitely very low on the totem pole. Um, although in the totem pole analogy, by the way, being low is a good thing. So being high is the, that's a different conversation. I was very low in the in power, social power at least. And so if I was to go directly to my boss and say, oh, you know, that's not really the best idea. I think you should do it like this in a very direct way. Obviously that would not be taken well because my leader would feel that she was being um, sort of um, over, I was overreaching, I wasn't in my place. And also I was speaking too directly. 
And so I quickly learned to do things like um, share, ask questions, and, you know, I'm might I might say you know very gently and kindly like an idea that I would I would have but I would be careful not to um, be too pushy uh, and be too direct so that's one very broad thing there are so many fun things to talk about with that though and obviously I learned the hard way so many times and I'm very sorry to all my Thai friends that I insulted over the years but thankfully we've made up and I have a great relationship with the, with most of them now but <laughs> Tell us about your global leadership course and some of the key concepts and ideas that you wish that students would leave with when they complete that program with you. Mm. That is a thank you for asking that because I love to talk about it. Um, and it was, it's very cool because most of our students in Louisiana um, and I go I work at a state institution which primarily serves people within the state of Louisiana and you know the, the needs of, of the state. Um, so it was very exciting for me to take a group of our students to such a new and interesting place such as Thailand. Um, some There's a bunch of things I would say. Uh, one of the things I would say that I think everyone needs, which applies to all leaders, um, is the idea of being curious. And this is something that I carry with me. Um, and it's very nice that I was even invited here because I think it reflects some of your curiosity, Craig, and the curiosity of your students to be curious about different people, where they come from, what they think. And hand in hand with curiosity uh, requires a kind of openness to learn. So you cannot be curious if you're closed off to learn. You must also be sort of open to learn new things. And um, for me, if you can be curious while remaining open, that is a massive source of joy and can be at least to learn something new. And we already know from a lot of like neuroscience that learning is incredibly pleasurable for the brain. So, and I think if you can kind of translate that into your emotions, it can be incredibly pleasurable to learn something new about a different culture. So um, even though this was a course on global leadership, I had my students read, for example, a Thai short story and a Thai poem. Uh, I had them read a little, about, a little bit about Thai history and a little bit about Thai politics and culture and some of the social issues that were happening. Because global leaders are curious, not just about what they're doing, but they're curious about everything. And that's what makes them so great, such great leaders, because they are curious about, oh, I saw that this person came in late. They're curious about that. They're not judgmental about that. They're curious. And so when you're curious, you're learning, why did that person come in late? You know, and maybe, you know, the bus was late. Oh, that's interesting. And you could learn all about the transportation system, by the way, in Thailand. It is fascinating. So there are so many things about, you know, traffic. So um, once you once you unlock this skill, in fact, I would call curiosity some part of a disposition, but also a skill. Once you unlock it, it opens up the world to a beautiful, a beautiful place, a bunch of beautiful places. And um, you can really, I think, develop some of your other global leadership competencies from that. Brilliant. Um, you, are you writing and researching at the moment? Am, am I writing or what am I writing? Sorry. <laughs> oh, yes. I don't know if you're too, if you're busy and you're delivering being a teacher you know, teaching in the faculty. Are you writing oh, and researching at the moment? Of course I am. In fact, I have to. So I'm a, I'm a um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the United States system, I'm on the tenure track, which is a primarily a research position. So in fact, 
most of my job, 50% of my job is doing research, writing and publishing and academic research. So, uh, and actually only 40% of my job is supposed to be teaching. Um, so yeah, I'm doing a bunch of stuff and, um, yeah, were you going to ask something about that? <laughs> yeah, please tell us, tell us what are you researching and, and working on right now? Uh, I have uh, many different directions and things I'm doing, uh, but I'll, I'll share probably the most germane project, which is that I'm working on a book right now, um, which is looking at human resource development. Um, in, at, you know, we, in the field of HRD, you know, it's about adult learning, organizational change, leadership development, those types of processes, not just HR in the very narrow sense, like payroll and benefits, but more broadly, training development, learning development. Okay, so um, uh, HRD, we think about HRD, human resource development, on the individual level and the organizational level the most. You know, what are organizations doing to boost their employees' skills? Um, that's, there's a ton of literature about that. It's awesome. Um, then we also, there's a new field, or a, not a new field, but a new subject matter in relation to national human resource development, which is sort of all these activities and processes that nations are doing to develop people. Um, it kind of is a conceptual cousin with human capital development. Human capital development delves a little bit more into sort of like health and um, and primary education, sort of like really early, whereas human resource development is typically just adults, sometimes gets into higher education. So as a scholar, I have to make a contribution to the existing knowledge. So we have individual Individual HRD, HRD, individual level, organizational level, national level. What I'm doing based on my experiences in Southeast Asia is looking at that at the regional level. So what are the 10, and I'm looking at primarily the 10 member nations in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. What are What is Southeast Asia doing as a region, coordinated and collaborated within the 10 member states to develop the people as a region? Because we know that the region is... Um, uh, working together, they're, they're, they are. It's not just you know every every nation for themselves. So um, that is a project I'm working on, and I'm looking at it specifically from what's called an ecosystems perspective. So noticing that it's not just you know policies or projects. Really, that there is an entire ecosystem, a human resource development ecosystem, which is dynamic and changing and interconnected. And it includes ASEAN, but it also includes each individual member state. It also includes um, big organizations like the Asian Development Bank and the, the World Bank and, and, how, and also NGOs. And there, there's this whole ecosystem of developing people for the workforce. So that's a big project I'm working on. As you can tell, I can talk about it for a while, but I don't want to just blather on too long. <laughs> So because I've lived in Indonesia for seven years and I'm involved in quite a multicultural community there and New Zealand is part of that ASEAN um, approach, um, what would you say is one of the more interesting or exciting strategies that the ASEAN region is putting into place to develop people? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, you know, um, that ASEAN is doing, there, there is, um, so I would have said maybe five years ago, that these mutual recognition agreements is the most interesting or are the most interesting thing that ASEAN is doing to develop its people. Because um, 
that at least looks like on paper the coolest thing. So what they're doing across several different professions is they are saying, look, if you have these, this skill set, for example, engineering and architecture, you have this skill set and you get approved as an ASEAN engineer, then you can, if you're Singaporean, you're Filipino, you can then go and work in any of the different um, ASEAN member states. And that's really amazing and really cool. And that's sort of going towards this idea of the free flow of skilled labor. That is pretty powerful thing to be doing in a place like Southeast Asia, because keep in mind in Southeast Asia, you have some of the most wealthy countries per capita, GDP per capita, and you have some of the least wealthy countries per capita. So um, that's a pretty remarkable thing to be done. The reason I say that's, that's less interesting to me, to me now is because A, a lot has been written on it, and B, not much has actually happened. There are very few people who've actually done it. So it hasn't it has yet to really be seen to be a compelling thing. Um, I think ASEAN, uh, one cool thing ASEAN does is the ASEAN skills competition. So they have an annual skills competition that different ASEAN countries host where um, younger people, you know, learn skills and then compete in a multi-day competition. So that would be one that's pretty pretty interesting and those um skills are dynamic they change over time too so it's not like the same set of skills um i would say they're also uh there's you know the most interesting thing actually asean doesn't do that much to be honest asean is sort of a facilitator but really the shakers and movers in southeast asia are the individual countries so i would say there's more interesting things that the you know organizations are doing companies are doing and the individual states are doing um and also international organizations are doing in collaboration so but it's a like i said this is like a very complex ecosystem and um i think a lot of people think that asean is is it but really it's about the member states and supporting the member states so in the couple of minutes that we have left, Ozzy, I'd love for you to give some career advice or some insights for aspiring leaders. What are some experiences or opportunities they should grab hold of before the next level? Cool. Yeah, that's a, that's such a great question. And, you know, everyone has things that's like, I wish that they told me that when I was in my master's degree, or I wish they told me that when I was studying earlier. So it's really great that you ask everyone that question. Um, I've already talked a lot about being curious, so I won't say any more about that, but I think that's a huge one. Um, I would say within your own, you know, everyone has skills that they have developed and cultivated over time. And you have some things that you think you should do. You know, I had so many things that I thought I should do in my life. Um, and I sort of started to pursue those, but then I realized, well, I, sh I think I should be doing it, but it's not really what I want to do. So there comes a point where you will have to, or we all need to sort of face, are we doing what we think we should be doing? Are we doing what we want to be doing as a, a professional in any, in any context, not just leaders? So I would say when that time comes for you, when you are facing, am I doing what I just, what I think I should be doing? Because this is like the path that was laid out for me or whatever, or, or am I doing, when that time comes, journal a lot, reflect a lot, call your friends, talk with them. Um, but ultimately, I would say generally it would be 
probably better to lean towards doing not what you think you should do, but what you really want to do. Um, and for me, that comes in the in the flavor of um, I was uh, I studied uh, religion actually in my undergrad, actually theology, and I was a minor in biblical languages, which means I studied for years Greek and Hebrew. Um, and I, you know, I, I knew I wasn't like I wasn't like a very super conservative. I didn't think I was going to become a pastor, but something related to religion, you know, maybe. But then I got to Thailand and I was like, no way. You know, I loved working with organizations. I loved cross-cultural leadership, cultural competence, global mindset, those types of concepts. I loved working with people and organizations and all the uh, complexities there. So in my own journey, um, when I started following that route, then I went and got my uh, master's at Harvard. And, you know, it sounds very pompous to say that, but I think one of the reasons that I got accepted there for my master's degree was because I was on fire. I had this vision about what I wanted to do and they noticed that. And also I had had some interesting um, experiences. So that would be my, probably my biggest tip is to find that. And, and I don't know, I don't want to use up all of our time, but I know we're coming to the end. <laughs> I could talk, as you can tell, I can talk a lot. <laughs> I love that you said to journal. I think that's a, a great insight for people to be able to look back because there may be another another uh, crunch time in their career or personal life and they can look back and think, how did I process that? Because it may not be the same sort of decision, but they can look back at their decision making and the process that happened around that. And that's an insight. No one's actually mentioned that before. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, awesome. I have a stack of journals. I journal all the time. I journal pretty much every day, actually. And even just a couple sentences, because you can process. If you journal, you're thinking a little bit because you're handwriting. You have to slow down and you have to sort of like actually think about it, you know, what? Mm. and you can start to, and also no one's watching, mm. you know, your dad's not going to read your journal. Your spouse isn't going to read it. No one's going to read it. It's just you and your mind. So uh, I think it's a great way to get clarity about things, to kind of separate yourself from external influences and really find, um, kind of find your voice. Well, Ozzy, we really appreciate you for your time and for your wisdom and sharing your experiences. And I'm sure Cheers. this is going to be hugely beneficial for our students. So wish you all the best. Stay safe. Uh, thank you very much. It's been really great for me to reflect and verbally process. So thank you all very much and best of luck in your studies and in your work.